One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Wow! Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com/acast and use code acast for twenty percent off your first purchase. That's bombas.com/acast. Code acast. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. Hey, sacred text. Hey, Harry Potter and the sacred text squad. Hi, Ariana, Casper, and Vanessa. Hi, Vanessa, Casper, and the entire sacred text team. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. I'm Matt Potts. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, an Owl Post edition. So Matt, in my family, the new year is very much in the fall. It's Rosh Hashanah. And that is something that feels true and authentic to me and my experience of the world. Like fall is really beautiful and it feels like this like beautiful, exciting transition, whereas the Gregorian New Year's Eve, I'm like, everything is dead. Nothing feels new. It doesn't feel like anything to me. In my family, we were sort of forced to stay in because my dad was like, they're just drunk drivers on the road. You're going to die. And so we like stayed in and played Scrabble and like didn't stay up till midnight. Like everyone went to bed. But in my new family, in Peter's culture, I don't know if this is true of all of Germany, but there's a lot of New Year's celebrations and you go outside and you hug all of your neighbors and there's just like this real beautiful community feel. So for the last few years, I've sort of begun to feel the magic of New Year's Eve. And so I'm wondering what your experience is, because it feels like we all have sort of different cultural touchstones with this holiday. New Year is a big deal for me because our celebration felt countercultural to the culture I grew up in because my mom is from Japan and people do stay up late in, in Japan on New Year's Eve. But for us, it was more about her trying to bring forth some of the other New Year's traditions that we as a family celebrated that nobody else celebrated. So on New Year's Eve, we always eat long noodles for long life. And I remember, I mean, it's such a weird, like immigrant kind of thing. Like I grew up in Michigan in the eighties, you couldn't get good shrimp tempura in the eighties in Michigan. So my dad would run out to Long John Silver's and get some fried shrimp and bring them back when we'd have these noodles that my aunt sent from Japan. And we try to recreate this like long noodle thing. And then the other thing is that the, the days before new year were always a big cleaning time. So our Christmas tree would come down right away because we had to get the house clean. Like the most thorough cleaning of the year had to happen before January 1st. And then January 1st through 3rd, those are three, special days in Japan, at least in my understanding, I was raised in the United States, right? But those are three days which are supposed to be days of rest. So all the cleaning's done, you just kind of, you just take those days slow, but it's, it is really like, it's not like crazy party time, it's slow family time. And so it's special to me, not because it marks a new year, because it was like this annual reminder, especially 
comparing our family to the families around us on a block, right? That, oh, we're different. We have this different heritage and this different tradition that my mom, even using the poor tools that she sometimes has, like Long John Silver's, is trying to keep going in our family. So yeah, so it means a lot to me, but less as like a as like the beginning of a new year because the Christian New Year is actually also at a different time, but because it like it's a mark of like identity and of who we are and of remembering family and where we come from and that kind of thing. Well, firstly, I just want to say that I love that I think that this is true of a lot of immigrant families. Like we also have these foods that symbolize the new year, you know, in, in Judaism for Rosh Hashanah, you eat apples and honey for a sweet new year. But I love that in Japanese culture, it's long noodles for a long life. I'm just very into symbolic foods. So, but I'm wondering if you do any of the sort of quote unquote American, or I, I don't know if they're just American things with New Year's of like, do you do, do you do New Year's resolutions? Yeah, I usually do. I usually do resolutions. I think one thing that's interesting is that in Japanese, the way that the new year is kind of framed just linguistically is different. It's not old and new. It's closed and open. So in English, you know, on, on December 31st or December 30th, you say, Happy New Year, right? In Japan, they don't say that. They say some version of something like gratitude for the years past or congratulations on closing out the year, right? And then on January 1, you start saying, Akamashite. Omerito, which means something like, congratulations on opening a new thing. I mean, I thought a little bit about like the difference between old and new and closing and opening. And I don't, I don't know if I have anything smart to say about this, right? But like, I think that we, we tend to associate, and this is acknowledging sort of the, the ageist implications of it, right? But we tend to associate old with, you know, no longer valuable and new with exciting and promising, Right. And I wonder, and part of me wonders if there's something to just kind of saying, no, actually, this is just a chapter that's ending. And maybe it was good and maybe it was bad, but you're just acknowledging that it's closing. And that something else is opening in front of you. And also, once again, it's not necessarily exciting or guarantees, right? It, it, just like any other thing you open or embark upon, it has a full range of possibilities, right? It's almost thinking about the new year as a gift. Like you open it up and there's something inside. Except that, except that there's so much that's unknown inside the package, right? It's like you open it up and you, you don't really know what's inside the box once you open it. And you're not even sure how to use it or what it's going to mean for you, which seems both more full of possibility, but also ambivalent in a deeper way than just everybody crazy, happy new year, celebration, whatever. I don't know. Does any of this kind of um, resonate for you, Vanessa? Yeah, that resonates with me because I think the idea is that a year of life is a gift and you don't know what the year is going to bring. In in Judaism, you know, Rosh Hashanah is just sort of the beginning of this 10-day period where God decides if you're going to go into the book of life or the book of death. And then I think the year is a gift that you're given and you don't know what's going to happen to you. You don't know what's going to happen in the world, but there's something new. And, you know, I even remember thinking, as Rosh Hashanah began, I was like, oh, maybe it's not about waiting for 2020 to end that will bring some change. Maybe it's about 5781 starting and 5780 ending that will like bring out some change. And I was I was really excited about that. And then, you know, Justice Ginsburg died and I just sort of plummeted <laughs> in, in hope. But then so many people talked about the fact, and this is a true thing about Judaism, that God, because he wrote her into the book of death for 5780, he kept her on earth because she was so special for as long as he could in that year. I guess I love that this idea of a gift, she did everything she could with that gift of a year. And it was a horrible year, right? Like the last thing she said was like, don't let him replace me. There was such anxiety on her part about when she was dying and such beauty with what she did with her year. Yeah, that really rings true for me is the way you describe that and even the way you describe sort of the experience of Rosh Hashanah and, and the death of Justice Ginsburg. I mean, that's the thing, right? In in Japanese custom, a lot of a lot of the traditions are around life, around like not just like celebrating life, but also acknowledging the precarity of our lives, right? So like you eat long noodles because you hope you have a long life, but we wouldn't be eating them for luck if everybody did. 
and you eat stretchy, stretchy mochi, the super stretchy rice stuff, right? Because you want to stretch it out to like trying to hope that your life is long enough. And especially as I've, you know, come into ministry and I've come to love people who are very sick, like, and you kind of know it. These people might not be around for the next new year. Like the turn of the year doesn't just signal, hooray, new, everything. Yeah, let's get crazy, right? It's also like, oh, yeah, time's passing and it's going to be different in a year. And the people who are around me might be different people for happy reasons, but also sometimes for really sad ones. And just, but that's also not a reason to despair because there also is, there also is hope in the new year, right? Things can be different. Things will change. Not everything is going to be better. But also not everything needs to be worse. So actually the way you phrase it actually helps me put those crazy New Year's Eve celebrations in a different light as well. Because what I want to do is kind of criticize them as like one dimensional and only looking at the positive and, and too triumphant. Right. But actually, when you put it the way you put it, which is like, let's celebrate that we're here right now. Not because we know 2021 to be great, but we made it through 2020 and we're together and we will be together tomorrow and we will be working together to try to make 2021 better like putting it in that way makes it less about like ignoring the ambivalence of the season and more like celebrating the relationships that are going to carry us through the seasons to come yeah i mean that's something i've been thinking about in covid right like we're all despairing we're all grieving and we're all so isolated and the thing that brings me some peace is knowing that we're all together in our isolation and our grief. I mean, one of the things I love about saying prayers in Hebrew is imagining people a thousand years ago saying the exact same prayers in the exact same language. And I find such comfort in picturing a, you know, a woman a thousand years ago saying the exact same Shabbat prayers as I say now. And yeah, and I just think about that with COVID too, right? Like we feel so isolated and almost like we're speaking in a language we don't understand, like Hebrew, but we're all doing it. And that's somehow comforting to me. The other thing I just want to say I've been reflecting on is, you know, because I live in Boston, which has like such a different weather like association around New Year's than where I grew up in Los Angeles, where it's like chilly, but like nice out on New Year's Eve is that I love thinking about, you know, our friends in the Southern Hemisphere where New Year's is like almost the summer solstice time for them. So whereas for us, it's right after the shortest day of the year. For them, it's just a week after their longest day of the year. I don't really know much about how the Southern Hemisphere celebrates New Year's, but I just love picturing them having this like beautiful summer party (laughs) that we don't have here and like lush and like you know all the plants blooming and green and like you can see life everywhere I, yeah it'd be completely different right my my stepfather-in-law is from iceland right and so their new year's is just like dark uh, like <laughs> 24 hours of darkness right and they still right, they still get together and celebrate because it's almost like this pinnacle of darkness is like okay the thing's opening back up right it, you just passed the darkest day of the year and so the days are starting to get marginally longer. Like you get your half hour of sunlight and then the next day it's 33 minutes or whatever, right? And like that that means something if it's been that dark all the time, right? So, so I'm going to ask something really ignorant. I was this many years old when I learned that there's a Christian New Year. What is the Christian New Year? It's not December 31st. Love a Jew. There is. It's not an ignorant question, Vanessa. There is a Christian New Year. Like, I mean, I think most Christians just celebrate the, the secular holiday. And this has to do with complicated reasons of like the Latin church and the Roman Catholic rite and all these things. Right. But there actually is a liturgical New Year, like a, a day when for Christians, the New Year flips over, which is four weeks before Christmas. So it's the season of Advent. Now, not all Christians observe the liturgical seasons, but most do. And uh, yeah, it begins four weeks before Advent. The interesting thing is like, You'd expect that Advent would be all like stories of Mary and Joseph and and getting ready for the birth of Jesus and all this stuff. And it's not. It's like mostly just lessons about the end of the world. It's less like apocalyptic lessons, either teachings of Jesus or sometimes teachings of a person who's meant to be his cousin named John the Baptist, who who just talk about like the end times coming and the arrival of of the Messiah signaling the end of things. And so it's like, it's funny every year when we begin in the Christian calendar, what we focus upon is the end. So it's, a, yeah, I find that interesting and, and something I like to preach about <laughs> every year. Oh, I love that. Yes. End of the year. Let's talk about the apocalypse. Let's think about everything dying and ending. 
Yeah, I like it too. Especially like, I think I like it for the same reason that I was talking about the reason I like New Year's traditions as we were discussing previously, right? Like that, that I sort of want to temper the season a little bit. Christmas and, and New Year's is often a very sad time for people. Like people remember who they've lost or what they've lost over the past year or are not excited about what the year to come. Or after a really hard year, like 2020, like it feels ambivalent. And you have all these messages of like, and this is a little bit different this year, though not entirely. Like you have like joy printed in huge, bold colors, like plastered over storefronts and in your face. And if you don't feel joy, that that dissonance can be actually, right? And so I like to say like, listen, I know that the consumer culture around us is telling us peace and joy, but like, that's not necessarily what the church is telling us. It's not necessarily telling us that we must feel these things. It's actually giving us a more capacious way into dealing with transition, dealing with change and dealing with closing and opening. Right. And the other reason is like, is also to, to remind people that the opening new possibility does not just signify celebration, although it may, it also signifies like, okay, we need to work together. We need to commit. Like, this is not something that's going to happen on its own. It's going to take all of us supporting each other and, and working for it. Right. And so I like that those messages kind of temper what, if left unchecked, I think would, would be a fairly monotonous message of like, you ought to be happy. And if you're not happy, you're doing it wrong. Absolutely. I mean, there's nothing more isolating feeling than feeling like everyone is out there celebrating and you're at home sad. So I think that that's such an important message of a lot of us are sad this time of year and a great reminder to keep people from feeling that isolation and and to feel that feeling of community that you were talking about. I think my attachment to books is entirely to do with the Jewish New Year, that all the Jewish New Year is at the end of the day is when you close the book and open it from the beginning again, (laughs) right? Like you close the Torah and then you start over. And the idea being the story is going to mean different things to you this year because you're going to have a new set of experiences. You're going to be a year older. That's so much better an analogy for my, like closing and opening than my present analogy, right? Which I struggled with, right? Like that you can see my, my own kind of consumerist culture already like imposing itself upon my interpretive uh, frames. But that, the idea of a book is so much more, and the same book is so much more, like this is still our life. Like one day to the other, they're just days in our lives. But the, to the idea to think that, okay, we've closed this chapter, the whole story, and we're going to start the story again and see what it means for us in the context of this new time. That's way more useful. Well, and then the other thing about starting this book over is not just that the members of the synagogue are going to hear the stories again and have them land on them differently, but the following year, a new crop of kids is going to turn 13. And so a new crop of like bar and bat mitzvah kids are going to be doing the meaning making of these stories for the congregation. And there's also something beautiful about that, right? That it's always these like brand new adults that are like, and now I'll make meaning of it. I mean, it's also got me thinking about just this podcast, right? Because you're coming to the end of book seven, right? And you're reading it again as a spiritual practice. I'll be embarking upon it for the first time, right? So we're both opening the book, but we're opening it in different ways. But also that these these novels are ones that people read and reread so many times, right? And that, yeah, the analogy of the book is great. Thanks for that. So Matt, in this new year, if you had sort of one wish for our listeners, what would it be? Long noodles, long life? I mean, at least that. Well, that's a hard question. I'm coming in a new relationship with your listeners, right? I've been pleased to be able to speak with them in the past. Uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to coming in a new relationship with them. There is like a new book that's opening or whatever for me. So I'm excited about that. But to wish for it, would to wish for like, Seems self-serving somehow to like wish for like, I hope it goes well. Like, I hope you like me, right? That's, that's, that, that seems, that seems weird. Um, and then also like all of it, just in the context of what the last one year, four years, you know, 401 years has meant for this, for this country is because the same thing, like my, my anxiety to kind of temper optimism so much. Like I, I, I don't want the wish to sound like, either trite or easy. So long noodles, long life. Yeah, I think that I hope that our listeners all find moments of 
peace, which I think is sort of the most that we can hope for right now, right? Are not sustained feelings of peace and joy, but I at least hope for for moments of it, moments in which people feel so bleak, but I hope everyone feels moments of being glad that they're alive and in this world. Well, I would love to hear from all of you. If you want to send in voicemails with what you hope for our community, a blessing for our community, we would really love to hear from you. I feel like Matt and I need some help on exactly what is appropriate to wish for. So help us out and send in a voicemail at harrypottersacredtext.com. Matt, should we listen to some voicemails? Sounds great. Let's do it. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. This first voicemail is from Charity. Hi, Ariana, Casper, and Vanessa. My name is Charity. I am 13, and I just have something that I thought that I would share. So... Um, me and my group of friends are really into Harry Potter, and m- one of the topics that comes up a lot is how a lot of people think that Ron is useless. And um, I'm very hard befo- behind in your podcast. I've just recently finished book four, and throughout you reading book four, um, you talk about how Ron is really just trying to find his place with everybody else. And um, I see lots of things that make Ron useful in lots of different books. And I even made a list to, to prove to some of my friends that Ron is not useless. But in the upcoming books, there's lots of talk about whether he helps or not. And I just wanted to see your opinion on um, whether you think Ron is helpful to the trio, and if so, in what ways. Thank you so much. I love the podcast, and I hope to hear back from you guys. Bye. Matt, people don't know how you feel about Ron. How do you feel about Ron? Uh, I am of two minds about Ron Weasley. First, thank you, Charity for your question and thank you charity for uh, listening and also for your your loyalty to Ron. I think what I like about Ron is exactly that, his loyalty. Now I know that a couple of times he gets into fights with with Harry and kind of leaves Harry behind, but I also think that, you know, as far as male friendships go, in my experience, speaking from my own kind of relatively limited experience, 
there's just a lot of competitiveness in male friendships. And to be friends with the most famous wizard in the world is really tough. And actually, you can I think you can see how Harry has trouble making friends, especially other men, like other boys, I should say, at, at Hogwarts, right? And there's something about Ron who, like, is obviously starstruck when he meets Harry on the first train at Hogwarts, but pretty quickly gets over that and just hangs out with him. Like, that means something to Harry, especially Harry feeling very vulnerable going to Hogwarts, knowing he's the most famous wizard in the world, but also not knowing a thing about anything, right? I think that's what Ron brings to the trio, is he, I think he looks at Harry as Harry, for the most part. And when their relationship breaks down, it's when he can't look past the fact that he's a famous wizard. But I grant him that, because I think that's pretty challenging. I, I think he's a really useful character, literarily, because he reveals bias and prejudice as it operates even among people who have good intentions. So the way he talks about house elves, the way the Weasleys talk about goblins and even muggles sometimes, right? Like you can see even among the good guys, how this just what seems natural to them perpetuates all these, right? And so that's, that's not something I admire in Ron. I think I admire him as a character because we as readers get to note that and that helps us kind of discern it in ourselves or in others. Long term, like I don't, I don't like him and Hermione together, but that's what, maybe that's something we get into, get into get into later. I don't know. What What do you think of of Charity's question and of and of Ron, Vanessa? I have come to love Ron more and more. I love his love of Hermione. I think that patriarchy does not want men to love strong women, and Ron loves this incredibly strong assertive, brilliant woman. I think it it sadly is countercultural for men to love that. And so I I like that about Ron a lot. But the moment that, you know, this is I'm stealing this from someone in our community class, and I am so sorry that I do not remember whom, but we just read book two. And there's a moment where a wall collapses and Harry is on one side of it and Ron is on the other. And Harry has to go and look for Ginny in the Chamber of Secrets. And when Harry comes back, Ron has been removing the stones one by one. And only because Ron did that can Harry and Ginny get back through. And Ron did that even thinking that Ginny was most likely dead, thinking that Harry was most likely going to die. And he just was standing there for, you know, however long the great Harry Potter had to go and talk to Tom Riddle and fight Voldemort. And, you know, Ron was sitting there moving stones and making Harry's triumphant return possible. And I think that that's just true of Ron and that there's something really beautiful about that. Yeah. And actually, your answer makes me makes me maybe want to withdraw my comments about him not liking him for Hermione because you're right. I think the reason why I don't like them together is because I his failures in that regard, when I feel like he does let her down, stand out to me too much. But I'm super forgiving in the way he lets down Harry a couple of times, but rallies when it matters, right? And and I should probably be more forgiving in the times when, you know, he does, of course, he's a human. So he lets Hermione down sometimes, but he obviously does really love her and, and have that kind of loyalty to her. So yeah, I should probably be more forgiving. I think it's because I, yeah, anyway, this is saying too much, but I think, I think it's because I have a daughter who wants to be Hermione. And so it's, I'm too quickly going like, <laughs> you need a better person, a person who takes care of you better than this joker. But that's just me being an overprotective patriarchal dad. So, so Charity's right. Defend Ron. Ron's the best. Up next, we have a blessing for Ginny from Luna. Which totally makes sense because they're friends. Hey, Sacred Text. My name's Luna. I wanted to call about the most recent episode, chapter 29, The Lost Diadem, um, and the scene where Cho offers to take Harry to Ravenclaw's common room and show him the statue of Ruina Ravenclaw. Uh, and Ginny replies rather fiercely, no, Luna will take Harry, won't you, Luna? Um, everyone on the show was talking about this as a scene where Ginny is showing herself to be a bit more of a jealous woman, and that this is sort of unfortunate and that it's out of character for her. Um, and I actually wanted to offer an alternate reading because when I read this last week, my initial interpretation was that she was defending Luna rather than that she was feeling especially jealous about Cho spending time with Harry. 
Um, because if you look at the previous page, Luna's the one who initially suggests the diadem. And then Michael Corner rolls his eyes at her. And later when she speaks again, Harry cuts her off. But then when it's Cho who's offering to show them more about this, all of a sudden it becomes this fine idea that they should go and explore. And I imagine if I were in Ginny's position watching this happen, I would feel very frustrated for my friend and and want to stand up for her as somebody who is, you know, frequently put down and pushed out. I really want to bless Ginny for being continually strong in in her legacy of being a fierce friend. And also to Luna, a blessing for having to always be thought of as silly or not worth listening to. And I guess, yeah, that's that's really all I wanted to say. Just blessings for, for all of you loyal friends out there um, and women who might not be taken seriously. Thank you. Luna, I have two thoughts slash responses. One is I love this reading. Nick Bull, who composed the music that you listen to in these episodes, and I used to work together. And we had a boss who would not hear me and then Nick would repeat what I said and the boss would go, oh, Nick, I love that idea. And Nick, every single time would say it was Vanessa's idea. And our boss sort of would pretend not to hear that. But just having Nick say it, I didn't need the acknowledgement from our boss. I like needed Nick to feel protective over me in that way and like a non-patronizing way. And so I love this potential reading of Ginny. And the second thing I want to say is that I don't have faith in J.K. Rowling. I think J.K. Rowling writes women as petty and competitive a lot of the time. And I think that this is meant to be a moment of humor, like, haha, Ginny is jealous of Cho. But I love your sacred reading of it. My feminist reading of it is that this is a lazy joke. Well, I think your feminism can work two ways, right? Like you can both doubt that that that's what Rowling intended, but you could also not care what Rowling intended because having created like these really interesting characters like Ginny and Luna, we can read these other dimensions and it can be both things, right? Like it can be both things. That's great. Well, Luna, thank you so much. That was awesome. Our next voicemail is from TK. Hey, Harry Potter and the Sacred Tech Squad. I'm TK from New Jersey, and I use they, them. I found your podcast about a year ago, and I'm finally starting book seven, but my voicemail is about your episode on integrity from book four. Back in June, I got into a bad fight with my friend Q. Quite some time ago, Q started having quote-unquote debates with me. I have considered every one of them fights. I should have made a no debates boundary right after the first one, not just because my ADHD makes serious verbal discussion difficult, but especially because I considered it a fight. But I didn't, so I ended up in June where I learned Q doesn't think Black Lives Matter is a legitimate movement and confirmed my longtime suspicion that our moral compasses weren't anywhere near each other. In the episode, you talked about love and loyalty in relation to integrity with a factor of time. You came to the conclusion that if a relationship challenges your integrity time and again, it's probably not worth keeping. But I have a very hard time letting go of people, and Q is one of only three in-person friends who regularly makes time for me. I've asked several friends what to do. Those who haven't said I should drop the friendship outright think it's worth staying friends with Q if he's amenable to a change in opinion. I don't think I have the skills to change his mind, especially when there's such a stark difference in how we value human life. Q also only thinks in individual terms and often fails to see how large-scale systems harm large-scale communities. Now it's Halloween and I still haven't made up my mind, so I'd like to hear your thoughts on situations like these. I'd also like to offer a blessing to anyone stuck between a rock and a hard place when deciding who to keep and who to let go in these frankly evil societal and political times. Thank you so much for making this podcast. Not only has your show been a great comfort, but it's also been really nice learning the Jewish perspective on things since I'm pretty far removed from my Jewish heritage. I hope you're all doing as well as you can, and thank you so much for your hard work. TK, my answer is a real like sacred text answer, which is if it gets you better at loving, I think at the end of the day, that's the question for friendships, right? And so if Q allows you 
to love them, to love yourself, to act as a more loving person in the world. That to me still seems like a relationship worth valuing. But if they are getting right, like if they're getting you better at resentment or hatred, any of those emotions, then I would say, right, like they're not healthy for you, at least right now. Yeah, I, that sounds overly simplified, though, Matt. What are your thoughts? Uh, I don't think it's overly simplified. It. I just think that love is super complicated, right? And so it, the, the simple, as is often the case, is really complicated. Um, a lot of listeners probably have heard this before, but in, in Christianity, one of the basic tenets is love your neighbor as yourself. And that means loving your neighbor. It also means implied in that is that there's love for yourself, right? And I think that would be kind of, for me, that would be one of the ways I would try to refract or frame this relationship. If there's a point at which fostering the relationship with you becomes a form of devaluing yourself, either because your values become devalued or the things that you care about most can't stand in that relationship, then it becomes complicated, right? But that really is like a thing that that we can't diagnose or ascertain from the distance of, of this phone call. Because TK, you said that, that Q is one of the few people who you get to see in person. And that in this time might be like depending upon what other relationship you have and how supportive they are, it it may be loving yourself to kind of to preserve that relationship, even if it leads to arguments, because you also don't want to let your values be diminished or sidelined. On the other hand, there may be other relationships that can stand. It doesn't mean it'll be easy. Obviously, it wouldn't be uh, if you're calling to ask about this, but I, it really is like a, a situation of individual discernment. But to affirm everything Vanessa said, that does it help you love better? but just to make sure that you are also being loved and that the, the relationship is one that, that builds you up in more ways than it brings you down. Yeah, Matt, I think we see this a lot, right? This is obviously a not perfect comparison, but Hagrid is like bad for the kids in a lot of ways, but they love him, even though he has them become part of a international crime involving smuggling a dragon across country lines. And then later he wants like Harry to come to Aragog's funeral and gets drunk in front of a 15 year old, right? Like he doesn't always behave in ways that's like really respectful of boundaries or certainly not in ways that I would want to behave with 15 year olds, but he's such a wonderful friend. I just think that it's on a case by case basis that we that we look at these things. Yeah, I think I think that's right. Uh, and I think it's a good example from from Harry Potter. But I also like want to acknowledge the particular complication of like values. I mean, you're talking about behavior of Hagrid's that can be evaluated in a case by case basis. But like there is something about, you know, I, I have relatives who I who I love very much who I'm pretty sure do not vote the way I vote. And that means that I'm not willing to break a relationship with them. But it bothers me, right? And that's what I mean. It, it it's not a happy relationship because of that. Like there's not there's no version of it which will lead me to happiness. I either have to remain in a relationship and be unhappy with this, or break the relationship, which will make me unhappy, right? I think there are versions of behavior that they could get involved in based upon the values that, that we do not share, which would lead me to say, okay, now we have to break relationship, right? So I think it also depends upon what Q, what Q's behavior is not just directly toward TK, but also in the world. Like it's one thing to, to argue about whether Black Lives Matter is a movement, a legitimate movement. It's another thing to argue about whether Black Lives Matter. <laughs> and it's an, even another thing to, to take action in the world, right? And voting is an action. And so I'm not saying, that's what I mean. It just gets really complicated all the way down and different people, depending upon their own vulnerabilities, need to draw, will draw their kind of line in the sand at, at different places. Yeah, that's so helpful because I think that even when Hagrid disappoints the kids, he's behaving in a way that they respect his values. They respect that he wants to grieve in community. So even when the particulars of his actions aren't great, they're always coming from a place that they respect. Yeah. Well, thank you, TK, so much. You gave us a lot to think about. And it's just not it's not an easy thing. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. 
Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This next voicemail is from Matias, and we want to offer a content warning that Matias talks about a traumatic death. And if that is something that you don't want to listen to today, just fast forward to our next voicemail. Hi, Casper and Vanessa. My name is Matias, and I'm calling from Chile. My best friend left me this podcast to keep me company when he went to the United States to study for his PhD. I had just read, uh, finished reading The Lost Diadem, chapter 29, through the theme, theme of justice. I've been having a bad time thinking about justice this year because my brother was killed three months ago. He was trying to stop a man uh, for hitting his wife and then the same wife was the one who was waiting for him outside the apartment and with a taser with some other guys and they beat him so four days after that he died in the hospital so in this chapter i see fred who asks for the plan to harry and says just going to make it up as we go along are we my favorite kind and that was the the type of thing my brother would said so that was how he lived life so I want to make you a question. These books are being my favorite books all, all my life. And do you think, I know I, it, they're good for me, but do you think for a little uh, child, my nephew, the son of Tomas, who was my brother, uh, there, he could find some comfort in this page? He can, I don't know, see an orphan who finally becomes the hero. There is something that this book can teach him about grief and about love so he can grow up. I don't know. Thank you for your time. Matthias, first of all, I just, I'm so sorry. I'm just so sorry about the loss of your brother and in this incredibly violent and unjust way. And I love your instinct to take care of your, your nephew, you know, in, in this, in this series that has such attachment for you, Matt, do you have any reflections to offer? Yeah. I mean, I, I also just want to offer my, my really deep uh, sadness and condolences 
to you, Matthias, for your brother, Tomas. It's a really hard question, right? Whether or not this series of books would be good for your nephew, because grief, as you know, I'm sure too well, Matthias, grief is so individual. It's so particular. Everyone experiences grief differently and everyone needs different things in it. I think what you can know and trust is that these books are in you, the lessons of love and care and grieving that are in these books are in you. And so I would say you are the one that your nephew needs. And it may be in your conversations with your nephew that maybe your nephew asks about, about Harry Potter or asks for resources or books, or, or maybe you just start reading and that, and it comes up more naturally, but I don't know that I would recommend, you know, offering the book or the books to your nephew as a way to deal with grief, because there may or may not be a way for him to deal with his grief. And I think often in my limited experience, often, you know, you don't want to give someone something that looks like a solution to a problem, which as you know, again, way too well, can't be solved. I mean, I mean, what, what do you think about that, Vanessa? Yeah, it's hard. I, I think that offering the books without saying, I think this will be an answer to your grief and hoping that that's how it works. I wonder about that, Matt, because I think that one of the gifts of reading is that I'm not sure that you get confronted with lessons that you're not ready for. Isn't the possibility that that Matias's nephew, if it's just handed to him as a fun kid's book, reads it as an adventure novel. But if he's ready to read himself into it, will read himself into it. Yeah, I think that is possible. That's a good point. Matias, if you gave these books to your nephew, I think the thing that would be most meaningful to your nephew would be that, that he got to read them with his dad's brother. I think that if you read them with him, I don't see how having more conversations or more discussions or a deeper relationship with your nephew could ever go wrong. And if these books are a way to do that, then absolutely. And then, and then also then the response is not the books, it's you carrying the book with you and the conversations you'll have together. So I think you have good instincts, Matthias, and I think you should trust them. It's obvious you care a lot about your family, care a lot about your nephew, and that you want to be present to your nephew in his own particular grief even as you grieve. And I think as long as you're doing that, trust your instincts. Yeah. And he might not like the Harry Potter books or he might only like them in five years or he might, you might read them together and he really sees himself in Ron, you know, and I think it's just about letting him lead the meaning making. But I completely agree with Matt. You're, you're the gift. Harry Potter is not the gift. You are the gift. And our last voicemail is from Zach. Hi, Vanessa Casper and the entire Sacred Text team. I just finished listening to the episode on justice, and I was really struck by something that Vanessa was talking about because I was listening to the episode while I was cooking when Vanessa talked about how she basically listens to podcasts and musicals, as do I, to distract herself from everything that's going on in the world, as do I. Um, I picked up on listening to this podcast in early fall of 2016 when I was living alone and in a city where I knew nobody. And it was, for very many of the same reasons, just a way to distract myself from feeling alone and feeling lonely, um, which is really what I felt for a long period of time in that situation. But I also, listening to this podcast has made, opened my eyes to a lot of the injustices in the world and has made me someone who is more willing to stand up and be counted and willing to get out and fight for justice as much as just being alive in the Western world has for the last four years, if not much longer. So I just want to say thank you for being friends and companions to me all the time that I've listened to you instead of feeling lonely. And I wanted to make a note that the things that we do can start as just practical and pragmatic and outlets for not feeling bad feelings, but can turn into something really important and really central to our personality like 
this has become for me and like the idea of pursuing justice has been for me. I completely agree with you, Zach. I think that these things can work on us in mysterious ways. And I'm very touched, especially you've been listening to us from the beginning. We started in summer of 2016. So the fact that you joined us in fall, like that's really lovely. What I was saying is that I hope that silence starts to work on me in ways that I don't anticipate, that I realize that my thoughts aren't as scary as I am afraid that they are going to be, that my own quiet company isn't as bad as I think it will be. And so I'm just trying to make room for that. But I I mean, obviously, like, I feel incredibly accompanied by podcasts and, and audiobooks and especially in times of distress, I, I feel like, you know, thank God for these things. So thank you for letting us accompany you. And yeah, I'm curious what silence will do for me. Yeah. And I think the way I want to react to Zach's voicemail is, is similar, but it's just around these questions of like self-care, right? Like one of the things that movements for justice need are people who are well enough to undertake the difficult work of bringing forth justice, right? It's a different way to read that line I brought forth from, from Christian teaching before, love your neighbor as yourself. It's, it also means that like, we need people who, are, who feel strong enough, who are strong enough to actually undertake work, which will be trying and difficult. And the way you describe that, Zach, that like the, the ways that we take care of ourselves do actually develop into ways by which and through which we try to take care of others in the world. I think, yeah, I think that's, that's the way it has to go because any other version is not sustainable, right? And so whether it's silence or being more connected to podcasts or whatever, like the thing that you need as we embark upon this new year is the thing you ought to do because that is going to make you the best you to get to the work of making the world a better world. Thank you, everyone, for sending in your voicemails. They're really beautiful. And thanks, Matt, for being part of this conversation. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Happy opening. Happy opening to you. (laughs) You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and you can find listeners who are discussing the episodes in the Facebook comment room. Join our local groups and come join the community of people who are supporting us on Patreon. We are watching monthly rom-coms and it's super fun. You can leave us a review on iTunes and send us a voicemail. Just make sure that it is no more than two minutes to please the great and good Ariana Nettleman and help us make our new podcast. You can go to patreon.com slash not sorry pod. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text was produced by Not Sorry Productions. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are distributed by Acast. We, of course, want to thank Charity, Matias, Luna, TK, and Zach for this week's voicemails. Julia Argeen, Nikki Zoltan, Megan Kelly, Stephanie Paulsell, and the Reverend Dr. Matthew Potts. Thanks, everyone, and we will talk to you next week. I nap to make the world better. Yeah, you do. That's right. That's right. And the world is better because of you. Because I nap. I don't know if it's better because of me, but it's better because I nap. (laughs) You're welcome, world. I might I might take care of you later today. <laughs>